with on-demand talk shows 24-7. I speed. This is TalkZone.com. It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the power vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of health care each and every day. That's the fact. Yeah. Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, it's very much gone mainstream. Identigene. Apparently, for $29.95, if you're low to a Rite Aid store, you can now buy a paternity test kit, three sets of cotton swabs. <laughs> very much mainstream. It's our focus each and every week during this time. It's all about health freedom for you and me as healthcare uh, uh, consumers, uh, the right to know, the right to use uh, tools and lifestyle choices to optimize our health, the rights of our healthcare practitioners as well. Dr. William Duncan joining us today. We'll talk about science-based nutrient supplementation and the misuse of some of that science. All that and more with our friends from the American Association for Health Freedom right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now, the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. Will it forever change the field of heart medicine, cardiology? Well, it's published in the current issue of the Medical Journal Circulation, which is the American Heart Association's peer review journal. Swiss researchers. Uh, report that dark chocolate rich in flavonoids might have a role to play in terms of heart health. What they found is that dark chocolate rich in flavonoids induced coronary vasodilation. In other words, those blood vessels around the heart, when they uh, go into spasm, when they're narrowed, of course, um, it results in angina or chest pain and reduced platelet adhesion and heart transplantation uh, uh, patients, is, which, of course, is a good thing because you don't want to have uh, clots uh, that might uh, set the stage for more rejection of the uh, of the uh, uh, transplanted heart or even a clot uh, being linked to a heart attack or stroke are two of the very positive findings that Swiss researchers now attribute to heart patients who consume dark chocolate on a regular basis. They assessed um, the the heart health using coronary angiography after giving heart transplant patients 40 grams of dark chocolate. The assessment was that uh, the short-term effects of flavonoid-rich dark chocolate are of great benefit to to the heart, and perhaps um, that heart-healthy plan of the future is going to include a little bit of dark chocolate on a regular basis. And, of course, as Dr. Whitaker has shared with us, he gives all of his patients a bar of dark chocolate each and every week. It's not only heart healthy, it has many other health benefits. 
now reported uh, in the American Heart Association's journal circulation, flavonoid-rich chocolate, we're talking about dark chocolate, improves vasodilation, in other words, um, expansion blood flow in the blood vessels, and reduces platelet adhesion. Uh, in heart transplant patients. Well, they say it just isn't so, according to the University of Minnesota. They have found that school lunch sales don't decline when healthy meals are, are served and that more nutritious lunches don't necessarily cost schools more to produce. I just shake my head almost on a regular basis uh, when the news surfaces that it's uh, you just have to be wealthy to be healthy, that it costs a lot of money to eat healthy. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> we, of course, have been culturally conditioned to think that we can eat fast and fat, according to one of the presidential candidates. It really isn't food if it comes through a window, uh, but it can be relatively inexpensive, maybe in the short run. And maybe if you don't cook and know how to choose food wisely, there are many rich sources of nutritious meals that may be as close as just something as simple as beans and rice. We know that darkly colored beans are rich sources of antioxidants. Yeah, (laughs) we don't tend to think of beans in that fashion, but not only are they nutrient-dense, chock-full of antioxidants, the darker color bean, uh, the more rich it is in antioxidants, um, they are also rich in a um, an ideal balance of soluble to insoluble fiber, which reduces our risk of obesity, diabetes, uh, heart disease, and high blood pressure. So, uh, in the upcoming issue, next month's issue of the Review of uh, Agricultural Economics, the Minnesota Public School Districts analyzed five years of data, look at schools serving the healthiest lunches, and found that why there is some higher labor cost involved with serving better meals, that it's offset by lower costs for more nutritious foods. They found that buying fruits and vegetables compared to purchasing processed foods was much more economical. And then they found the percentage of school children in the St. Paul uh, public school district eating school lunches increased at the same time they began to offer more fruits and vegetables. So it doesn't mean they don't have hot dogs, but it's a turkey low-fat hot dog, and they serve a lot more fruits and vegetables. And, of course, as you and I well know, those simple steps will not only help um, to reduce health care costs in the long run, with uh, our youth now bearing just a, a tragic legacy of being more overweight, more likely to have heart disease and high blood pressure, go into puberty, have uh, type 2 diabetes, have uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is uh, linked to obesity and insulin resistance at earlier ages. What, how could we do nothing less than serve our children healthy school food? Which brings to mind um, now a, an exhibit at the, uh, the JFK Presidential Library and Museum. I clearly remember it in school when there was the call for physical fitness from the president, President Kennedy at the time. And we had certain uh, physical, you know, 
uh, pull-ups and chin-ups and push-ups and sit-ups that we had to do to, to gain certain status um, in the uh, what the President's Council on Physical Fitness was all about. Apparently, former President John Fitzgerald Kennedy um, was focused on the need for our nation to have youth fitness as a measure of our nation's vitality, worried that many young people in the military were failing their fitness test. So he created uh, that challenge for every school child. I clearly remember <laughs> trying to do the chin-ups, which not my uh, my strong point, uh, as part of it. And uh, the advisory body uh, set up by President Eisenhower uh, on the President's Council on Youth Fitness uh, was embraced and furthered uh, with gusto by then-President Kennedy. In fact, he hired the legendary Oklahoma University football coach uh, Bud Wilkinson to be part of this Council on Physical Fitness um, even uh, signed up Charles Schultz to create Snoopy's Daily Dozen, exercised by Peanuts char- uh, characters with the awareness uh, of bringing to the American people and to the schools that our nation's young needed to be a little more fit. And one of the interesting notes of this exhibit at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum um, is a football given to President Kennedy by the 1962 U.S. Navy football team, signed by the team's players and coaches that included uh, former or, uh, or future at that time Dallas Cowboys star Roger Staubach and assistant Navy coach Steve Belichick, the father of Bill Belichick. So interesting focus uh, in the past highlighting JFK's push for fitness uh, with the uh, thought in mind that we could probably benefit a little bit more these days by a little more focus on fitness no matter what our age. Well, it is uh, now a little bit of history. The American Heart Association's annual scientific session uh, just held recently in the Orlando area. Now, come on, you got to hand it to these heart doctors. They go to the toughest places for their medical meetings. A lot of information coming out about uh, energy drinks in your heart, chocolate in your heart, uh, more information on that, Exercise in your heart. We'll come back and give you an overview with Dr. Bill Duncan joining us today at the bottom of the hour. We'll be talking about the science-based nutrient supplementation evidence and the misuse of some of that science. Our line's open as always. We're just a phone call away at 1-800-307-3002. Dr. Bill Duncan joining us today from the American Association for Health Freedom. Our line's open right here on Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Now, back to the woman who has helped change the face of health care. More than a plastic surgeon with a tub of Botox. Here's Deborah Ray. Our focus each and every week on health freedom with our friends from the American Association for Health Freedom. Uh, their lobbyist, Dr. William Duncan, will be joining us today at the bottom of the hour to talk about some of the misuse of the current science 
in science-based nutrient supplementation with the revelation that um, looking at where we stand as Americans and all of us can do so by going to cdc.gov, looking at the National Health and Nutrition Exam Surveys, only to discover that we're not optimally nourished. We may be heavy, in fact, heavier, more overweight, higher rates of obesity than ever before for adults as well as children in this country. But that growing phenomenon that we consume a lot of empty calories, we're not optimally nourished. And uh, that certainly can result in lower body stores of critical nutrients, which is certainly related to uh, the status of our health. And we'll take that up in a little more detail when uh, Dr. Bill Duncan joins us today at the bottom of the hour. We were talking about some of the various research projects presented at this year's American Heart Association's annual scientific session uh, held in Orlando um, uh, just um, Uh, I guess a little over a week ago. And uh, some of the interesting information that came out of it was the Japanese researchers uh, took a look at good quality dark chocolate. We were talking about the Swiss research uh, earlier. Uh, Again, these uh, Japanese researchers also focused on coronary blood flow. Uh, We're speaking of then uh, blood flow to and around the heart in a two-week Trial assessing coronary flow velocity reserve. In other words, a measure of blood flow to the coronary. In other words, those blood vessels around the heart in um, healthy adults, average age uh, 29, volunteers either eating dark chocolate or white chocolate. And what they found is that coronary flow velocity reserve that indicates uh, the ability of blood vessels around your heart to dilate, that there was significant improvement when the participants ate dark chocolate, but no change when they ate white chocolate that contains no flavonoids. And there have been many quips in the, uh, the medical literature to suggest that the next buzz in nutrients We are just in the waning days of the buzz about antioxidants is all about flavonoids. And it is intriguing indeed with earlier this year, a Harvard researcher looking at the health of the Kuna Indian tribe in Panama, uh, an indigenous species who traditionally consume a lot of flavonoids, uh, flavanols in their diet. In fact, they consume about 30 cups of of cocoa-based flavonoids each week in the Kuna tribe in Panama, and they have literally one-tenth the incidence of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer as anywhere else on the planet. Just fascinating indeed. Well, the other interesting information coming out of the American Heart Association's annual scientific session were two new studies showing that exercise is essential in the recovery process of heart failure patients. In the past, we have told heart failure patients who are often short of breath, uh, just literally physically exhausted, got to take it easy. Don't push yourself. These new studies indicate that people with heart failure can regain 70% of their exercise capacity if they stick 
to an exercise program. And that exercise uh, can boost the growth of new cells to regenerate weakened muscles, improve the growth of blood vessels in people with heart failure, um, that heart patients who were at similar levels of heart failure were placed on a doctor-supervised exercise program showing that the number of uh, progenitor cells, these are important uh, immature cells in skeletal muscle, start actively dividing to form new cells and repair muscle damage when they're stimulated by exercise. At the end of the program, exercise capacity had increased by an average of 35%, giving uh, men, in this case, um, in the clinical study, who already were in congestive heart failure, three-fourths the capacity of healthy men their age, indicating that heart failure is not just a, oh my goodness, put your fares in order, there's nothing you can do, a growing body of science-based evidence to suggest that nutrients make a difference. Those nutrients include coenzyme Q10, L-carnitine, D-ribose, magnesium, fish oil, and that exercise can both boost muscle and blood vessel regeneration in heart patients. Henry Ford Hospital added to the interesting information being presented at the American Heart Association's annual scientific session focusing on energy drinks. They are everywhere. And I'm often amazed by those in the medical profession that I would consider to be hopefully a bit more wise when it came to lifestyle uh, factors who consume these uh, energy drinks on a regular basis. So Henry Ford Hospital put it to the test. They um, uh, recruited adult volunteers, average age 26, uh, in relatively good health. They drank two cans of energy drink um, uh, daily for a period of seven days. And what they found is that their blood pressure went up and their heart rates increased dramatically. That uh, drinking two cans of energy drink can be dangerous for people who already have existing high blood pressure and heart disease. They found the upper uh, blood pressure number, the systolic number, uh, went up uh, about 10 points after these uh, healthy volunteers, remember they were only 26, consumed two cans of energy drink a day, and that heart rates uh, increased by 7 beats per minute, indicating that um, certainly the vulnerable, those already suffering from high blood pressure and rapid heart rate or tachycardia, should perhaps avoid energy drinks. Well, if you are concerned uh, by how long you will live, British researchers um, have a little more information about that. We've been talking about the fact that many medical researchers indicate that the size of your waist is as important a predictor of your overall health as many of the other risk factors that are often assessed by your doctor. That that waist measurement is particularly indicative of obesity, um, insulin resistance, your risk of type 2 diabetes, uh, your risk of heart disease. Now British researchers say the size of your waist and the bulk of your biceps is a much more accurate picture 
of men's risk of death than body mass index alone. They surveyed over 4,100 men aged 60 to 79, found that those who had a waist less than 40 inches and had above average muscle mass in their upper arms were the least likely to die over a six-year period. And, of course, uh, that may correlate to testosterone levels. Um, And knowing that testosterone levels have gone down on average uh, 20% in the last two decades in this country, testosterone often linked, and rightfully so, to increased muscle mass. Perhaps uh, the doctors of the future will focus a little bit more on uncovering testosterone deficiency and optimizing hormonal balance with big biceps, trim waist, meaning a longer life for men. We're going to return to talk with Dr. William Duncan, joining us today from the American Association of Health Freedom. We'll talk about the misuse of the scientific evidence for dietary supplements. We invite you to join us. It's a toll-free number no matter where you're listening to us at 1-800-307-3002. Dr. Bill Duncan joining us today on Healthy Talk Radio. The information presented on Healthy Talk Radio is all well-documented and presented by credentialed guests. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but hey, how much do they know about medicine anyway? It's our focus each and every week during this time all about health freedom. It's important for you and me as healthcare consumers. We want the freedom uh, to uh, make informed decisions about our health based upon objective scientific uh, evidence. And of course, we, we comment on a regular basis how much of the current research and literature and medical school education and clinical practice. Gosh, if you picked up yesterday's New York Times Sunday Magazine and read just an incredible article by psychiatrists about how vested interests color clinical practice. Well, that determines, um, you know, how you and I are treated. Are we treated on the, the, on the basis of the best science or what the doctor feels is best for us or on the basis of uh, pushing the vested interest. We've talked recently about what appeared in the New York Times science section, and that was the revelation that if you and I should suffer a heart attack and were anywhere else among the industrialized countries, we would have a uh, physician prescription for fish oil. But according to a preventive cardiologist at Emory University who was quoted by the New York Times Science Section, there is a real disconnect when it comes to science in this country. So I know of no better person to to address that uh, than someone who ably uh, directs the efforts of the American Association of Health Freedom inside the Beltway. He's Dr. Bill Duncan, who joins us today. Bill, hello and welcome. Thank you again, Deborah. It's great to be on the show. I understand that you recently attended the American College for Advancement in Medicine meeting and heard some interesting information there, too, Bill. Tell us more. Well, I did. It, it was great. Uh, I always enjoy going and meeting with the physicians from all over the nation that are really working to help treat people's, uh, the cause of people's disease, not just their symptoms. And uh, I often get asked, asked who I represent on the Hill, and my answer is, well, I, I represent the guys that when your doctor sends you home to die, these are the guys that fix you. The... Dr. Jeffrey Bloomberg from Tufts University was at the um, conference talking about 
how the the misuse of evidence-based medicine and the misuse of randomized clinical trials, especially when it, when it came to nutrition research. And considering that these are extremely important topics, his I found his approach both refreshing and enlightening. And keep in mind that you know I did this for Congress for ten years, so when when he enlightened me, it was really answered many of the puzzling questions we've had. Do you know that forty? There's been a forty percent reduction in the use of vitamin E since the vitamin E study came out in the nation. Yeah, just in the last two weeks was uh, you know the results of an Israeli t- trial that was stopped uh, way early into a clinical study because the results were of such great benefit, helping to prevent uh, type two diabetes to go hand in hand with heart disease. Bill. Yes. Yeah, and yet we had the study that came out here in the United States that said that you you know your your cause of death from all causes, by the way, which included having a car accident or having somebody come into your home and kill you was the same as smoking two packs a day if you took vitamin E, okay? It turns out when you look at how the guy did the study, which was published, as you know, several months ago and and got extensive uh, play in the media that vitamin E was going to kill you, was actually based on an interesting selection of criteria, Okay? And this was most enlightening. They, there were 1,163 studies available on vitamin E. Okay? Okay. This guy, the guy that did the study, parsed them this way. 800, of the 1,663 trials, 848 were excluded because of various criteria. Then they then they had 815 left. They excluded 747 because there were no deaths from any cause. Okay. All right. Then they excluded a number, a number, uh, 68 more trials because 20. Excuse me. They looked at 68. They excluded. They excluded 21 more because of high bias in favor of it working, in their opinion. Then they excluded 40. They looked at 47. Excluded 21 because they involved selenium, which is an excellent antioxidant. So that left them 26. And from that, they then looked at the 26 and came to the conclusion that vitamin E, because they had made sure they had things that had deaths in them, despite what all these other 1,663 said, that you had to, you know, that vitamin E was going to kill you from somebody coming into your home and committing a homicide in your house or having a car accident or having her Pedro Katrina wipe you out. I mean, when when I see that kind of science, quote, used to make public policy, we get really, really bad results. And it's interesting you bring that up, uh, uh, Bill. Have you have you read Gary Taub's new book um, uh, about good good uh, carbs, bad uh, carbs? No, I haven't. It's an interesting treatise on how, um, in this case, government-funded research was focused on that feedlot mentality Mm -hmm. uh, in the face (laughs) that there was really no evidence to back it up, and it affected policy to to the extent that we now have just the the craziest school lunch (laughs) menus and food pyramids that aren't based on on any science at all, Bill. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. This is... This is 
what really amazed me as I was as I was attending this meeting was, my gosh, what we've been saying now. Evidence based medicine is designed to help you gain a knowledge of what the best science is because right. there were right. there, because people weren't very sophisticated about it. So, but one of the the founder of evidence based medicine himself was very concerned that it was going to be used to exclude data and deny care. And he didn't want it used that way. He wanted it to use to help expand our knowledge. In other words, 12 studies that are moderate to poor, if they all have the same outcome, can kind of tell you the outcome you should have in a in further study. So in this case, denying 1,663 studies to get down to 26 to get your conclusion is just ignoring a huge amount of the body of evidence available. And how that translates, I mean, I continue to be amazed because, as you and I well know, often it's the case that the doctors really don't stay up because of any number of pressure demands in terms of of times and, and all the concerns with with go on with the medical profession these days on the literature that they, they pick up on this you know this this myth of oh vitamin E oh you shouldn't be taking vitamin E yet there there's standout studies that nobody ever comments upon Bill mm-hmm. yeah uh, there's another one the multivitamin multimineral supplements and chronic disease prevention okay uh-huh. It turned out there were 11,324 articles available to be examined. Okay? Okay. In the summary publication that was done, they looked at 63 of the 11,324 articles. That's 0.06% of the evidence. All right. So... They're just, I, I think, being too lazy to read and wanting to get paid. For it. I, I just, I just come to that conclusion as I, as I watch this. Hormone replacement therapy was another fascinating one. Hormone replacement therapy has been shown for years, as you know, to be beneficial to postmenopausal women. Amazingly, when they did the randomized control trial, they had a problem because if they gave a woman who was postmenopausal the placebo, she'd have flashes. Uh, you know, hot flashes, right. and she'd know she was getting a placebo. So they picked postmenopausal women post twenty years. Mm-hmm. We know from studies that if you pick postmenopausal women twenty years later, uh, after they're in menopause, they will get higher incidence of breast cancer and strokes from having hormone replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. So now they've included somebody that we knew shouldn't be included. They got the result we would ex- have expected to get. And then they came to the conclusion that it's bad for everybody. So does it go back to the fact that you know that, that 65% of the department heads in medical schools are uh, are on the you know the dole of the pharmaceutical companies does it go back to the fact that now there's revelation that that meta analysis are often colored by these vested interests as well Bill Well I it, it's partially that but I think it's a, a more of a personal bias NIH was so upset about the the vitamin E study that they actually convened a panel and the guy who I don't think was invited did show up who wrote the article to defend himself. And what he said was, we know that we have good drugs to treat these diseases. 
it's foolish. We need to, to, to convince people to stop taking these worthless things like vitamin E. And so it was his personal bias. And it was a very clear bias, and I, I, I can't, you know, he might be getting money from one of the drug companies. We don't know that necessarily. But I really suspect that it's a very basic bias I've run into for years. Uh, well, if this was any good, they'd have taught me, but taught, taught me this in medical school. Right. Uh, in fact, when we talked to Dr. Merrill, who, who's at Columbia University teaching uh, nutrition there, he, there. he figured he was going to teach a nice advanced nutrition course in, in using nutrition, uh, to, uh, look at symptoms when your patients come in to see if there are nutritional deficiencies involved you can treat. What he discovered was none of his Columbia University physicians that he was training had had any nutritional instruction past basic biochemistry in their first year of med school. Yeah, okay. it's truly amazing. I, I recently talked with the author. He's a Dartmouth University professor, brilliant guy. He has just an intriguing book, you know, Should I Be Tested for Cancer? Maybe Not, and Here's Why. And when I tried to engage him in a conversation, okay, you know, what is true prevention? You know, what about lifestyle and nutrition? Um, you know, he was, was very upfront. Uh, sorry, I don't know anything about nutrition. I was never taught that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so what what Dr. Merrill wound up doing is is teaching a basic course in in nutrition in that last semester of medical school before the guys left. It was like he was astounded by this, and yet uh, I've, I've seen that again and again. Gee, I wasn't taught about medical school. Of course, if you come in and say, well, we want to teach about this in medical school, they say, well, there's a time in the curriculum, you know. Uh, so you're kind of caught caught in there. Uh, I'm happy to say they. I think they had 63 medical school students at the uh, at the ACAM conference in Phoenix, which is a great opportunity for them to get exposed to tr- treating uh, not just uh, symptoms but causes of disease. So it was a very refreshing conference from that standpoint as well. Because as, as many of us know, doctors don't like to say they don't know. And when it comes to clinical practice, I mean, the, the economic reality is that the world out there, consumers out there, are interested in dietary supplements, and they do want to work with physicians who are knowledgeable in these areas, Bill. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other fascinating parts of this was that in all the clinical nutrition intervention studies, they never take an assessment in the control group of how many of them are actually taking a nutritional supplement or whether they're deficient. They never look at deficiency. Mm-hmm. They simply assume everybody's equal and go from there. And this actually caused one of the artifacts in the calcium treating, uh, preventing uh, uh, hip fractures. Mm-hmm. They came to the conclusion that they used in the Women's Health Initiative, uh, they actually used each different arm of the study as a control for each of the other arms, which is kind of bizarre to me. So we're using people that are involved in the low-fat diet study as the control group for uh, the, the calcium intervention portion of it. Well, it turned out when they looked at the control group underlying this, the, the control group uh, was taking calcium supplementation to the tune of 1,100 uh, milligrams a day. The treatment group was getting 2,000. They found no real difference in stress hip fractures, and they came to the conclusion that, therefore, supplementation made no difference when everybody was getting supplemented. 
And, you know, when it comes to, you know, an area that that is huge for both public policy as well as, uh, you know, general consumer well-being, diabetes, you know, the recent British literature that confirms, uh, you know, what was was looked at at Harvard, at University of Kentucky by Dr. Jim Anderson, uh, Mm -hmm. by so many nutritional physicians, that you have increased excretion of nutrients uh, because of diabetes and that with supplemental nutrition, you can, in essence, uh, uh, reverse up to 90, I'm seeing, you know, figures 90, 90, 93, 95% of the disease just totally goes over everybody's head, Bill. Oh, I know, I know. It's like, uh, well, we can't we can't evaluate people for chromium deficiency. There's no good test for that. Uh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but it takes four chromium molecules to open a glucose receptor on a cell, so you can't say that it isn't essential. Uh, we'll be back with more. Dr. Bill Duncan joining us today. We're talking about the misuse of the scientific evidence, uh, which certainly colors clinical practice, or certainly colors the media. I'd like to get uh, Bill's insight on that. We're talking about science-based nutrient supplementation, the science to back that up. But what happens to clinical practice in this country? We invite you to join us with Dr. Bill Duncan right here on Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Now, the woman who is single-handedly changing the face of healthcare. Hey, can we get a little help here, please? She shouldn't have to do this alone. Here's Deborah Ray. Dr. Bill Duncan joining us. Uh, we have a regular weekly focus on health freedom. He ably guides uh, the efforts inside the beltway of the American Association for Health Freedom. If you're not familiar with them, they have a great website, uh, healthfreedom.net, healthfreedom.net. If you're not on the web, 1-800-230-2762. And I clearly remember Bill with uh, Dr. Cherry Lieberman on uh, the air with me from time to time. Uh, you know, we're yes. talking about screaming at the television or screaming at the radio, <laughs> saying, that's just not right <laughs> when we see how the media skews so much of this uh, uh, this scientific evidence as well. Your insight. Oh, you're you're exactly right. And you know when we bring this up to them, what they'll say is, well, if it's e- if it's not in the journal uh, Journal of the American Medical Association or the New England Journal of Medicine, we don't look at it. Okay. okay. So all of the other <laughs> valid data out there is simply not examined with any credibility because, well, they can't make up their mind. If we if we follow you know the international literature you know just mm-hmm. like the comment of that preventive uh, cardiologist you know just like the example that um, you know there is a prescription grade supplement official yeah. that if you take a look at their website there, there there's one <laughs> standard for medicine in this country versus one standard for the rest of the world bill mm-hmm. absolutely and it's astounding to realize that that so many of the the policymakers here in this country don't believe the rest of the world has anything to offer, which is why it's said that the way we do research is with uh, small animals, large animals, Europeans, than Americans. <laughs> so what's a consumer to do? I, I know this is an ongoing passion of yours as well as the American Association of Health Freedom Bill. Well, Basic, the basic problem is we are still responsible for our own health care decisions. We cannot leave this to others. And if we wait for them to tell us whether or not 
uh, vitamin E is good for us or whether, you know, multivitamins are good for us. When you look at the biases involved, we are often better off going against the conventional wisdom and making sure that our nutrition is complete. And uh, I think this is so essential. Uh, I picked up a slug this morning coming into D.C. and he said, well, I take the cheapest stuff at Costco. And I said, well, make sure you're not getting uh, iron oxide in your multivitamin because, after all, that's just rust or cupric oxide. At least try to make some, make sure it has a more complex name <laughs> uh, than the green stuff on the Statue of Liberty. Mm. So... Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I know we'll have future discussions as always. We will Bill. indeed. You do such a great job. Our thanks to you. Thank you. Our thanks to Dr. Bill Duncan. Healthfreedom.net will tell you more. Our thanks to you. If you missed anything, the show archive for two weeks on Deborah Ray reminding you live long, stay healthy.